Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie making process. Hosted by Shower Thoughts. Shouldn't feet just be called leg hands? Now, let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome everybody to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Interflix, streaming the new mega hit, The Crows Have Eyes 3, The Crowning, only on Interflix. Welcome everybody to the vessel i am wes and i am todd and this is a film podcast where we discuss films at length i would say 90 percent of our shows at minimum discuss the movie at hand and so i don't know that's kind of one of the one of the high points of of the show i think i mean we talk industry and and work a little bit here and there but usually as it applies to a film or i don't know i listen to some podcast and I hit play for whatever, a discussion about hypertrophy on an exercise podcast. And then they spend 45 minutes talking about how someone deadlifted a thousand pounds. And I'm like, okay, that's, that's, that is not even remotely close to the conversation, but I'm curious, like when, when is it that you listen to podcasts? Like what, what is uh, the, the kind of things that you're doing whenever you find yourself listening to a pod? Usually, you know, if I go for a run or a long ride or something, or, if I'm doing something where I'm kind of stuck doing that thing or away from other distractions, you know, mm. I can't like have my phone on and listen to anything or listen to a podcast because kind of defeats the purpose. It's like, oh, why am I even listening if I'm like not even paying attention to doing something else? Yeah. So maybe if I'm, you know, waiting for my car to be inspected or something, or if I'm doing some chores around the house, things like that, you know. Do you find yourself listening to more music than podcasts or is it about even? Typically. Or? Yeah. Typically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know it sounds funny cause we do this, but I'm not a huge podcast person. I, yeah. I, uh, I'll listen to something, you know, I'll listen to Joe Rogan's podcast when there's someone on that I, you know, I'm excited about and a few others that it's, but it's usually through recommendations. I, I rarely go out searching for new, new podcast stuff, you know? That's so, what about you? Yeah. And you know, I mean, I'm probably the exact opposite. Like I'm listening to podcasts all the time when I wake up and I'm getting ready in the morning. I, the first thing I do when I walk into the bathroom, have a, a little stereo in there and I just hit play like whatever yeah. podcast is uh, kind of on deck. I have a few that are in steady rotation that I'm like, okay. Uh, some of it's news topical kind of cultural conversations, trying to get, you know, a, a breadth of ex- different ideas around that. And then, uh, some of it's craft related, you know, film screenwriting, that kind of stuff. But whenever you're not in the gym with me, like I'm listening to a podcast in there, hmm. uh, it's kind of a way for me to distract myself from the pain. <laughs> and then, yeah, no, that makes uh, sense. If I'm driving or if I'm cooking, uh, yeah, I can chew through a lot because when we started doing this, I didn't listen to podcasts. Like I had one and that was, Key and Clyde's podcast that I would listen to. Uh, and then other than that, I think when I was in the car, I would just listen to music. And then I just slowly, oh, this is one podcast I'll listen to. And it's kind of accumulated into, I have, you know, 20, 30 podcasts, uh, some limited series like the Chernobyl podcast. And some are these, you know, regular rotating things like Freakonomics. Yeah, I feel like I'm always learning something and there's times when I get burned out for sure. But uh, most of the time I'm like excited to, to tune in and, and add a new piece of information to 
you know, my dearth of knowledge about the world. <laughs> so what are your, what are your favorite podcasts right now? Oh man, there's a new one, uh, with it's called blocked and reported with Katie Herzog and, uh, some other dude, um, or some dude. And that one's great because it's these very left-leaning liberal people discussing some of this, uh, some of the cultural issues with the left, um, as we commonly refer to it. Uh, and so I, I really appreciate anybody who's of a segment and criticizing that segment. Um, I feel like you're going to get some really good insights or, or uh, contradictory feedback that you wouldn't otherwise normally hear within that bubble. And so I love anti-bubble discussion from within mm. the bubble. Um, yeah. That's always really good. Uh, Freakonomics is always interesting. They're always having really fun dives. And I love that they challenge all kinds of ideas. Reason Roundtable I listen to a lot. That's libertarian uh, views on today's stuff. Uh, there's a new one that's out. Gosh, that's called something something about space. And I already forgot what it's called, but it's these two uh, scientists who discuss space. And that's that's really all they do. Every single episode, they ignore almost everything else. And we're going to talk about wow. how freaking cool Mars is today. Or uh, here's what's amazing about Venus. Did you know Venus has had a, a probe landed on it back in the 70s? Um, uh, yeah. And, you know, by the Russians. And I was like, oh, man, I feel like I've heard that before. But, you know, it's so rarely discussed because all of our attention's on like Mars and Jupiter. Um, and so, yeah, like uh, there's a Send lot of science things. I will. <laughs> I was like, yeah. I think this is something Todd would enjoy. Uh, yeah, for sure. I, I love hearing nerds talk. Uh, the last one I'll note is script notes. Um, I periodically oh, yeah. uh, tune into those guys. Um, they're interesting. And what's been really crazy, I started watching this new show on Apple TV called Mythic Quest that I was telling you about. And there's this character that pops in about halfway through the first season, and I hated him. And at a certain point, I noticed in the credits uh, the name Craig Mazin. Uh, and I was like, no, is that Craig? So this new guy that popped up on the show is this guy that I actually really love. <laughs> um, but in the show, he's terrible. Like, he's such a... a annoying character and it's it's a really great writer that wrote uh, chernobyl the hbo series oh um, wow yeah and so yeah i love that show and so i'm always kind of picking around like cinematography podcasts and that kind of thing wait and, the writer one of the writers of chernobyl is in starring in mythic quest yeah and he's not an actor it's not like oh he's good he's yeah just, he's a quentin tarantino type where he acts and and you know, he's, he's a writer. Like he wrote Chernobyl. Chernobyl was his baby from beginning to end. Wow. Um, and then, yeah, I guess, uh, one of his writer friends said, Oh, it would be really fun to work with you. And I think you're perfect for this jerk character because he's got a pretty strong personality in that way. And part of me is conflicted about that as an actor. When I see someone who's not an actor acting, I get very conflicted on the one hand, I think, Megan Gans, uh, who was one of the premier writers for Mythic Quest, should get to work with whoever she wants to work with. Like, I, I don't begrudge her that. Like, uh, but at the same time, I'm also looking at Craig Mazin's character and I'm like, man, as an actor, I would have loved to have had an opportunity to work on that show as that character. And so part of me is thinking about it in terms of, man, an actor didn't get a chance to act. But on the other hand, I'm like, he's perfect for the role and he's killing it. So why not? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I just had this whirlwind of, I don't know, hypocrisy and, <laughs> and frustration kind of swirling around. Don't nope. we all? Isn't that life? Isn't it life? For sure. <laughs>
Awesome. Uh, yeah. So today, um, if you are just joining us, uh, we are doing Dead Poets Society. So if you haven't watched this uh, film, please pause the episode and go watch it because there's uh, some serious spoilers happening. For sure. We'll touch on a few things. Uh, cinematography, uh, some of the, the the spinning cameras they have in a few scenes, as I found kind of interesting. Uh, we'll also touch on story and writing and ask the question, what's in a name? And look at some of their naming conventions. Um, that and other such stuff and things and stuff. And a quick synopsis of the film. Maverick teacher John Keating uses poetry to embolden, embolden his boarding school students to new heights of self-expression. Directed by Peter Weir. Screenplay by Tom Schulman. Cinematography by John Seal. And is starring Robin Williams as John Keating. Robert Sean Leonard as Neil Perry. Ethan Hawke as Todd Anderson. Josh Charles as Knox Overstreet. And Alexandra Powers as... Yeah, yeah. And Alexandra Powers as Chris Knoll. Now, for those of you who don't know, a yelp is a loud cry or yell. Now, Todd, I would like you to give us a demonstration of a barbaric yelp. <laughs> Come on, you can't yelp sitting down. Let's go. Come on, up. Gotta get in yelping stance. A yelp. No, not just a yelp. A barbaric yelp. Yelp. Come on, louder. Yelp. Oh, that's a mouse. Come on, louder. Yo. Oh, good God, boy, yell like that! There it is. You see? You have a barbarian in you after all. Now, you don't get away that easy. Picture Uncle Walt up there. What does he remind you of? Don't think. Answer. Go on. A, a, a madman. What kind of madman? Well, think about it. Just answer again. A crazy madman. Oh, you can do better than that. Free up your mind. Use your imagination. Say the first thing that pops into your head, even if it's total gibberish. Go on. Uh, go on. A sweaty tooth madman. Good God, boy. There's a poet in you after all. There. Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Close them. Describe what you see. Uh, I, I close my eyes. Yes. Uh, and this image floats beside me. Sweaty tooth madman. The sweaty tooth madman with a stare that pounds my brain. Oh, that's excellent. Now give him action. Make him do something. His hands reach out and choke me. That's wonderful. wonderful. And all the time he's mumbling. What's he mumbling? Uh, mumbling truth. Yeah, yeah. Truth like, like a blanket that always leaves your feet cold. <laughs> forget them, forget them. Stay with the blanket. Tell me about that blanket. You, 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 you push it, stretch it, it'll never be enough. You kick at it, beat it, it'll never cover any of us. From the moment we enter crying to, to the moment we leave dying, it'll just cover your face as you wail and cry and scream. Yeah. Don't you forget this. So good. Man. So I definitely have a couple questions for you, but I'm curious... Two things right off the bat. One, does this movie like play for you? Does it work for you? But also, you know, I'm curious if there's, if, if I recall correctly, you went to an all boys high school. Um, and so I'm curious mm -hmm. if there's any similarities or uh, relating to that, to the film on that level. Yeah, um, there definitely were. I mean, it was very strict and um, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. This movie just wrecked me. Um, and I didn't expect it to. And uh, I think it was, um, uh, I think it was just watching Robin Williams do his thing, you know, in a way that only he could do again. And I just kind of, um, I found it really hard to get through the whole thing um, in one sitting. And um, uh, yeah, it was 
uh, sorry. It's okay. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, I mean, you know, whatever it, I went to school, I went to an all boys school in the nineties. So it's going to be different obviously than when, you know, this was set, uh, you know, and my parents weren't nearly, you know, the way that most of these parents were, which is just like, you're going to obey the rules and, you know, and everything. So, um, I mean, there was a little bit of that and we did have priests, um, as teachers and, um, some of them turned out to be very bad people. Uh, I escaped that thankfully, but it was very much about rules and it was very much about do the work. And we had teachers every now and then that would, you know, they, they weren't the extreme like Keating, but they were kind of along those lines where it was very, um, very like, this is what we're supposed to do, but we're going to do this, you know? And those were always like the, the classes that were most exciting to go to, you know? And, uh, and the ones that I remember the most, uh, so that was really cool. But for the most part, it was, it had to be very by the book. And, um, you know, if you were found outside of a classroom or something, you'd be punished. Um, you had to have a hall pass and, and, you know, all, all that stuff. I mean, by the time I was in school, they had done away with, you know, the whipping and stuff like that. So I had escaped that probably, probably by like 10 years, maybe. So not by much, but enough. Um, yeah, so it was, there were some similarities, but for the most part, it was still otherworldly. It was still very like different than, than my experience in, in the, the aggression kind of way, you know, mm. but there were still, I, I still think that there were parts that I don't remember about high school on purpose, you know, that, wow. you know, that were, yeah. My high school, sorry, this is really hard to get through. Um, my high school was like really expensive and my parents went through a lot to send me to it to there. And so I think part of me was feeling, has always like felt kind of like I, it's. Does that create a pressure in order to, yeah, to use it? Thank you. Yeah. I, I'm trying to phrase this. Yeah, it, it's like part of me is it's hard to talk uh, or like really remember about parts that I don't want to remember about because of that, because I want to be very, you know, thankful yeah. to my parents for their sacrifice. But at the same time, it was not a place I enjoyed and um, it was not something that I would ever want my kids to indoor, whether it's an all boy or all girl, girl school. And it had nothing to do with that. There were no girls there. You know, I mean, you know, that I, I think is, a, I think is a problem. I think you should absolutely be co-ed as a school. I think it is detrimental to children to not be around the other sex, uh, like in so many ways, but, um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, it was, it, yeah, there were some things that just were kind of like triggered me a little bit and were difficult to watch and made me angry and just, you know, thankful, so thankful that 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 is rare now, you know, well, at least from from my, my world view, <laughs> it's rare. I'm sure for other people there that does exist. There are still boarding schools and uh -huh. stuff. And but hopefully teachers that, you know, aren't like these teachers, you know, other than Keating, right? So anyway, I, I mean, I just, there's just so much about this movie that I loved that, that, um, and I watched it with my wife too. 
it was a wonderful experience. It's just an incredible film. And yeah, Robin Williams is amazing in it. I think that all the, all the actors are incredible in it. I mean, geez, man. Yeah. Ethan Hawke and Robert Leonard, like they're just so, so fantastic, you know? And obviously yeah. there are some lines, you know, there's some lines here or there that you're just like, that's eh, yeah. bad. Eh. <laughs> like that. Okay. That's very, when was, when did this come out? 80s? 90s? 89. Yeah. 89. Yeah. Yeah. It was on the cusp there. I was like, they're so 80s, but <laughs> could have been early 90s. Doesn't matter. They're the same thing really. But for the most part, I thought that they just completely nailed it. I thought the moments, the the build moments of the desk standing, the bill moments of the parents finding Neil and and Neil, you know, his acting and, and all that stuff, like they have really good lead-ins to these moments that are supposed to be transformative or supposed to, you're supposed to pay attention. Yeah. You know, even the moments of from the beginning of Keating kneeling down in the circle of his students, you know, say he's, you know, you tell a student, okay, you probably, your parents probably want you to be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever. And that is noble. That's a noble life pursuit. But what's the point in, in literature? Well, it's, it is life. It's the meaning of life, right? You can, you can be a doctor to, you know, experience life or to, or whatever, but it like the meaning of life is this and kneeling down and being quiet and small, you know, and the camera being down there with him really like made me feel like I was there. And I can't look at Robin Williams uh, at all. I can't look at him at all and at all without like having an emotional visceral response. And then, and him in this role, this like, you know, this powerful, you know, but just kind of like taking you by your hand, like guiding role is an unbelievable experience that I don't, you know, I did not, I definitely didn't have before he died, but I wasn't watching movies the same way I'm watching them now, you know? Yeah. So it was just, yeah, I haven't had this kind of experience with a movie in a really long time. So it was really awesome and exhausting <laughs> to, to, to tell you the truth. Uh, so yeah. Did uh, you and Jenny have a talk about it at all uh, during or after? Yeah. Yeah. We talked about it quite a bit. I, um, I mean, some of the bullet points are like the um when they found neil when the parents found neil, i lost my mind i lost it like i've never cried i've never cried like that in a movie or because of a movie or anything really like i haven't cried like that in probably 20 years where i was just uncontrollably heaving um and i think that that had I mean, it was everything to do with the direction and, and the movie and the pacing mm. of the, and, uh, you know, like, and the setup for it and everything. Um, so we talked about that and, and how, you know, we just need to support our kids and we need to, to tell them that whatever it is that you love, do it. And we got you back and the light's always on, you know, we're always here, that kind of thing. And then, and, but we also talked about Walt Whitman and, you know, the, the poem, the, the road less traveled poem. Mm. And she said, you know, it's so interesting because everybody gets that poem wrong. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, it's not called the road less traveled. It's called, uh, I have it here. Uh, it's called the road not taken. So the poem is not about him choosing to take the road less traveled. It's about him wishing he could take both. Wow. Coming to a divergence in a road and seeing that they're both equally 
pretty much equally tread down and only being able to choose one and always longing and always longing to know what the other one was would have been like what would have happened you know or what would it have been better or worse or whatever and if you read the whole poem it's it's obvious i mean it's called the road not taken not the road less traveled so it's the literally the opposite but everybody takes the last couple of lines of the of the poem if you want i'll read it yeah please I have it right here yeah and i'm terrible at reading obviously because i can't even read the notes you write <laughs> at the beginning of every <laughs> i can't even read the synopsis ever uh so i'm a terrible reader but um that's not why true. i do a film podcast <laughs> <laughs> all right um uh so yeah this walt Whitman, the walt whitman the road not taken two roads diverge in a yellow wood and sorry i could not travel both and be one traveler long i stood and looked down one as far as i could to where it bent in the undergrowth then took the other as just as fair and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear though as for that the passing there had worn them really about the same and both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black oh i kept the first for another day yet knowing how way leads on to way i doubted if i should ever come back i shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence two roads diverged in a wood and i i took the one less traveled by and that has made all the difference so basically not basically it's saying that it really doesn't matter that you come to a fork in the road you take one because you're only one traveler. You're only one person. You can't take them both. And that makes all the difference that you take one. Not the one you take, but that you take one in general. And you can always, you know, and he says, it's so interesting because he says, knowing how I want, I kept it for another day, but knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. So it's like, like, oh, I'll do that another day just to make yourself feel better, but you're probably never going to do it. You know, you always, you went down this path. Now, knowing that you take the poem, it, like it just opens up the poem to this whole world because I always, you know, felt weird about that, you know, take the road less traveled. And, and they address that so much in this film, you know, when I forget his name, but when that one kid stands up in the, the church and like talks back, right. Well, and then gets paddled. Yeah. And then Keating goes and talks to him and says, no. That's not, that's not the point. The point is not to just always take the road less traveled, to always be, you know, combative. The point is to come to my class, <laughs> you know, to be able to come to my class, right? To choose, to pick and choose, like, you know, and that is the, the beauty of being able to do that. And I felt like for the first time I heard that and I loved it even more because before, yes, there is some noble nobility to doing that, to saying oh this is the easy way but i want to take the harder way because i think it's going to be better for me or it's going to pull something out that the the easy way won't or whatever but it's not always necessary um in fact in a lot of ways it's unnecessary or unproductive or or you know unforgiving or like you know um detrimental 
um, to a point and you just have to make those decisions. And that's the road that he's talking about. So I learned a lot from this. I, I feel like I fell in love with poetry again um, because of this. I just saw it in a different way. I was like, I was standing on a desk looking at it in a different way and watching it next to my wife, who is a teacher and has dedicated her whole life to doing that and just watching her like lose it too about the beauty of not just Robin Williams and, and this man and what the amazing stuff he's given the world, but what she does and um, how much she loves it and how good she is at it is um, pretty inspiring. And uh, it was really wonderful, uh, exhausting experience. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for sure. For sure. So, wow. yeah. I don't know. Uh, what about you? What about It's been a while since you've seen this. I couldn't even put a, a date on it. I mean, at least 10 years. Um, yeah. But it's one of those that just kind of crawls around in my brain. Um, mm -hmm. And it's good to refresh for sure. You said something uh, a minute ago that I was like, yeah. Uh, and it gets a little bit into the naming convention stuff. But it, you, you were talking about, you know, our introduction, the class's introduction, you know, one of the first times they, they meet him, uh, he, he kneels down and he's kind of giving them like a, a pep talk almost, but uh, there's another aspect to that, that you were, you were hinting at. And one of the, one of the things is uh, the way that school is structured. It's very much an iron fist, right? It's just like, you will conform. And in doing so, like you have all these adults who are placing themselves above, you know, the, the students quite literally, even in the opening sequence, right? When, when you know, you have that, whatever lighting of the light, passing of the light of, intelligence or I forget what the enlightenment um, that the mm -hmm. professors are given. They're on this dais, right? That's, you know, uh, above the, above the kids. And so seeing a couple of things for one, he's humbling himself in front of the class by lowering his, his status, you know, phys physically. But then later on, of course, he does the exact opposite. He invites them up and then he steps down. Great point. And he's allowing them to have the, the higher elevated status, you know, in the, in the classroom. And he's trying to invite them. And even at a certain point it, while doing that, he, he sees a kid just kind of jump off the desk. And he's like, no, no, no. Hey, you know, take a moment and actually experience it up there. Uh, don't just, you know, jump, you know, instead look uh, and, and feel it. Uh, and then that kind of plays on Neil himself, one of the names and this, the naming conventions all over the place. And I, I kind of love it for that because I tend to do more consistent namings in, in my, my writing, but here they just kind of pick and choose who's going to mean what. And Neil's name, uh, seemed to be, seemed to convey the idea of kneeling, like everyone around him, his family, um, you know, his dad and the school wanted him to kneel to them. Like his, he's supposed to be, he's supposed to prostrate Prostrated. himself. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and every time he tried to stand for himself, right, he got beat right back down uh, until there was nothing left to beat out of him. Mm. And so I love that. I love, yeah, that identification of understanding, hey, let's choose a, a teacher who is a role model who's not trying to, to, to ring them out because even at a certain point, whenever he's trying to teach and, uh, kids are being, you know, uh, dicks, <laughs> like yeah. he, yeah. he still kind of lets them have their moment and, and meets them where they are. Uh, like the kid who, you know, who gets up there and says, 
his poem and it's, you know, the cat sat on the mat. Uh, and he, he jokes right back with him. He's like, Oh, you just finally scored a negative on this ridiculous scale that we ripped out of the textbook. Um, but then he also says, Hey, you know what, but you're right. You know, some, some themes can be very simple and powerful. Um, and that's okay. But also I love that he challenges the kid to not be ordinary. He's like, you know, but don't settle for being ordinary. Um, and he leaves it at that. And so the kid was both, he had his moment, but he also felt like, oh, I kind of let him down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but with direction, it wasn't just for the sake of, I'm ashamed of you and I'm uh, whatever, I, I, I'm looking down on you. But it was like, hey, there's somewhere else to go. There's something to aspire to. And I love that. That was his thing. It was, let me give them something to aspire to instead of saying, Hey, be and do this. It was the exact opposite of that, right? Uh, the whole walk around in the the courtyard, um, and then Dalton, the one who ends up speaking out in the assembly and getting in trouble or whatever, he decides to not walk, um, and he's like, "Thank you, you're you're you know proving my point. You're an exemplification, right? You're proving my point." Um, and at first, you're kind of like, "Is he being sarcastic? Is he you know just?" But then he ends on uh, this other note. God, I'm totally going to forget what he said. But it was to the effect of uh, the the idea of nonconformity. Do not conform. Um, and he was like kind of underscoring like, good. You chose something that was for you, despite what I was wanting you to do. Um, mm-hmm. And he, you know, lightly applauded that. And I say lightly because at the same time, I'm sure there's a limit for him. And we find that limit, right? Yeah. Um, and that's good too, <laughs> but I loved it, man. I, yeah, it, it's, it still holds up for me. I still really enjoy it. There are those lines that kind of creep in here and there, um, that seem appropriate to the time. I couldn't quite pin down when this era is supposed to be late fifties, early sixties, uh, it's kind of what I settled on, but I, I, I'm not sure. So there's certain elements that are like, who calls their dad father, like father, don't, don't say that or, you know, yeah. uh, and it's just like, uh, okay, it doesn't feel right out of the mouth, but at the same time, I know it's accurate to this setting. Yeah. And, but by and large, I mean, a lot of it's gorgeous, a lot of beautiful shots. There's that, that scene where the, the backpipers on the, on the water and it's just all these beautiful purples and, and golden hues against the silhouetted trees. And it's just like, oh my God, is that a painting or a, a frame? Um, and it's just absolutely perfect. Yeah. Yeah. This speaks to me. I love Robin Williams. And that's the funny thing. He's only kind of in here, right? He's, yeah. he's sprinkled yeah. in. Uh, but for me, any movie that he shows up in is a Robin Williams movie. He takes it over. <laughs> totally. Uh, <laughs> Completely takes it over. And that I noticed that too. I realized that too. Um, towards the end, I think. When was it? It was like right before. The last time you see him before the last time you see him. So not not when he's like collecting his belongings, but the time before that. And I don't remember what it was. Oh, I think it was after he finds out that Neil that Neil uh, killed himself and he sees the book. And, you know, it, I, I mean, I realized at that point, I was like, we, we haven't even really spent a lot of time with him. We know nothing of him, you know, very little of him beforehand, you know, whatever the kids find, we find, mm-hmm. right? So we know as much as the kids know, which is really smart, really brilliant, because then that keeps him, 
a little bit of a mystery and we never know what's going to happen the next time we see him. And that's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, I, th I, w I would imagine that would be Robin Williams anyway, <laughs> in his personality. You never know what you're going to get when you see him. I imagine, I don't know, but, but yeah, it, it keeps it keeps you on your toes and you don't know like, Oh, there he is. Ke there's Keating. Okay, cool. What's going to happen now? But yeah. So it was just, it was just beautiful. I, I totally agree. Yeah. I don't know. I'll run through some notes and we'll keep peppering yeah. in things here and there. Um, yeah. The cinematography, like I said, gorgeous. There was one thing they did a, a couple of times that I was just like, oh, that's interesting. What's happening here? And that's where they they rotate the camera in one way or another. Uh, the first time I, I noticed them doing it is when uh, Todd is writing a poem and he's feeling like he's, you know, like we all do when we write like, oh, this is terrible. And he kind of is quitting on it. Neil walks in um, and they have this conversation. And I love this moment between them because Todd is like, you know, back off. And Neil listens to him. He's like, no, <laughs> he's like, what? He's like, no. And he snatches it and they start racing around the room. Um, and the camera just sits in the middle of the room and it just spins on its axis. Right. Uh, we just kind of keep turning around and around and around. Uh, and that was the first time, uh, the next time I noticed it was also with Todd, uh, whenever he says he doesn't have a poem, which was a lie. Uh, but then that, that clip that we played at the beginning where, uh, Keating challenges him to, to think, you know, like close your eyes and describe Walt Whitman and let's, let's have this moment. Where's your barbaric yop? And at, we're now putting, uh, it's the exact opposite. Now Todd is in the center and now we're kind of rotating around him, him and Keating together. It's really interesting. I, I don't know that I nailed it, but what I felt from it is that it's creating a lot of life um, and it's dizzying and a little confusing. Um, and it, I feel like that's the, the vortex of, of Keating himself. Like they're being turned around by all these conflicting ideas and self-discovery. Um, and Todd is a, a perfect example of someone who's trying to find his voice um, and to some degree, he's maybe he's not even trying. He's just he doesn't want to discover his voice. And he's kind of pushed into it by his classmates, by Keating. And, and so it's just this vortex, this whirling, this whirlpool of, of energy and excitement of, and discovery of who we are um, as exemplified through Todd's story. And so I just I loved it. I don't know. There's it's a hard thing to pull off. I've seen other films do it and I hated it where an otherwise great movie was almost completely ruined by a spinning camera. Um, there's like waves, I think does that, uh, another film that does it really well. It follows. And of course, different speeds and tempos and, and ideas behind it. But here it, it thrilled me. Like I just, I love the energy in it and yeah, it was different. And it also takes a, a different type of, of lighting and the way you last week in the fighter, we, we discussed kind of 360 lighting and you, you have to do that. You have to 360 light for a scene like that. Whenever we're in the classroom spinning around, uh, rotating around, you know, Keating and, and Todd, um, where we have to empty the class of all lights of all crew. Um, and now it's gotta be your camera operator and mm. your, your audio engineer. Uh, they're tethered together uh, as they spin around together and it becomes this great point, great dance, this choreographed thing that we got to make sure there's no reflections, uh, that, that, you know, betray us and we got to minimize our shadows. 
there's a little bit of shadows that pop up on on Keating and Todd, but uh, you're so caught up in the moment that you you really don't notice it. It's you're just emotionally there and invested. Yeah, so that it becomes a whole thing. You have to think through all these different problems. It's a lot of problem solving mm-hmm. that comes in when you when you want to execute that. So you got to you really need to have a purpose behind it, uh, especially with this kind of budget where you might set up half a day to get the lighting just right so that you don't see the lights outside outside the windows, let alone inside the class, because a lot of that lighting is probably coming from the windows. Or if it's not, then you have to light you're switching out all these bulbs in the ceiling. Like it becomes this whole task just to execute one simple camera move that looks very simple. And it's like, oh yeah, that's the easiest one you do that day. Maybe, or maybe it becomes the biggest headache of the week. <laughs> I yeah. don't know which, yeah. I guess it depends on the, the, the setting, but I, I'm just imagining in 1989, uh, I don't know if they had 500 uh, T 500, you know, ISO film because they shot this on film stock. Like maybe they had to bring in extra more extra powerful lights to to make it work. I don't know, but it, it's a lot to think about, and I loved it for so many reasons. Uh, Especially the one in the in the room. That's such a good point. Of in the sorry, they're both in a room. Yeah. The one in the classroom with Keating. Ah, yeah. Because the one the one in in the dorm room, maybe the you know like the cinematographer can lay down and like you know the camera could sit on something that spins and they could do it that way. But the one in, not the one in the classroom, the one in the classroom, he's having to go around them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that had to, I don't, I have, I don't know, but it seems like that would be harder to yeah. do and, and nail. Right. I would think so. Like it, it's probably a little easier for the cast to watch their step a little bit harder for your, your camera and your, uh, your sound engineer to your boom op uh to to yeah. not trip over each other or you know the set like yeah you have to dance yeah because there was a step up there mm-hmm. too yeah there's a step it's almost like a little stage so the camera guy's got to step up to it and then down Ooh. and you got to be careful about sound too he can't step too hard yeah. right he probably was in his socks or something like yeah, that you know slippers or but something yeah like wow that's a thing yeah, i didn't even think about that <laughs> a lot going on in there for sure as far as story and writing stuff, naming conventions usually fascinate me. Uh, if you've listened to our episodes uh, more than a few times, you will notice that I usually draw attention to names because writers, as writers, we we can only control so many things. Uh, and novels are usually much harder about how can I create a name because novels are only going to live in, in print form uh, as far as the, the the author knows. And so as a, as a novelist, you're like, how can I convey the idea of this character down to a name where this name makes you feel Snape? Snape is a mm. snake, right? He just conveys it. Dumbledore. Dumbledore is a very soft and uh, like kind of congenial Santa Claus. Like you just feel the warmth from a Dumbledore. So these names, you know, you try to boil down uh, into some idea or another. Uh, and for screenwriters, like you're trying to maybe build out your themes or the character journey, even if because now you as a screenwriter, you know, these names are going to be said out loud. Uh, and so you you choose your names a little differently, probably than a novelist will. Um, and so you want to start playing more thematically and uh, how does it land on the tongue and all these other you know ideas are, are coming across. Like, how do I 
how do I make this work? And so we'll pop through some of these things uh, because even Keating himself notes that they have strange names, right? When he meets Meeks and Pitts, uh, he calls it out. And so clearly there's some thought going behind these names. Uh, even if I completely butcher all the reasoning behind it or, or don't find all the best ones because I don't know what Meeks and Pitts would be because Meeks, fine. He's a little bit of a meek character. Pitts, I don't know. He seemed like a good guy. He didn't seem like the Pitts. Uh, but maybe there's like a, a romantic poet that goes by Pitts that, or there's a famous poem named Pitts. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm not a big poetry guy in that way. I love poetry and writing it, but I, I don't know like classic poets. Mm -hmm. I've never really picked up Whitman. I think I've read uh, some Ginsberg and that's about the extent of it. But anyway, Keating is, seems to me a play on John Keats, who is a famous romantic poet. And he was born in London, which is where Keating himself and the, uh, moved from and where his wife still resides. Uh, and so that was one poet that I picked up on. Uh, I picked up on no other poets. <laughs> so if there's more in here, I missed them all. Um, <laughs> But Keating is a really cool character. Like he loves teaching. And I love that moment whenever Neil goes to talk to him about wanting to act uh, and he spots his wife uh, and he's like, oh, where is she at? And he's like, he's she's in London. He's like, whoa. He's like, yeah, it doesn't make it easy, <laughs> you know. Uh, and he asks him like, well, why are you here? Welton is the worst. Like Keating knows Keating went to school there. He's part of the legacy. But I love Keating's response. He's like, this is what I love doing. I love teaching. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. And I think that's a really important moment because otherwise, without that moment, you might call Keating out as being a hypocrite himself. But he's not. He's not a hypocrite. He is sucking the marrow out of life. And he's doing what he loves despite what it costs him. You know, his wife is in London. And so this creates a little havoc on his personal life. But He's doing something that's very important to him. And that is very much in line with his values and, and what he's teaching. He's, so to speak, eating his own dog food, um, as they say, which is weird, of course. Um, <laughs> and Knox, I found very interesting. And it's spelled K-N-O-X. Um, but of course, Knox, N-O-X, is Latin for night. But the Greek have... Nox, N-O-X, as the goddess of the night. Um, she's a pre-primordial goddess, um, which is before like the Titans. Um, and so we begin the film in Latin, uh, an actual Latin class, right? Uh, where they're just going through this dry recitation of, I don't even remember what it was. I'm sure there's something profound in it, but it was like Logoria, Logorias, and whatever. Uh, I speak no Latin for the record. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure everyone knew that. But, but as a shock. Yeah, big shock. Um, but we end the film in Athens, Greece, with Midsummer Night's Dream. That play is set in Athens, Greece. Um, and so we begin the film in Knox Latin, which is. It just means night, <laughs> like, but we end in Greece as a god of the night. Like that's such a great transformation for Knox because for him, that's also where he wins over Chris, his love that he's pining for and he's, he's just going for it, right? Um, and it echoes back to one of the first things Keating tells them whenever they're, they approach him and they're like, hey, what was the Dead Poet Society? What, what was this thing? 
and he starts just enchanting them right because he's like no we weren't just dudes or guys like you know we were we were dripping the poets off our tongues like honey women swooned gods were created and you know and Knox in his own journey <laughs> He, he becomes a god it's so good and i love yeah. there's this great moment whenever he he cancels like a night they had just gotten going during their uh, uh their dead poets meeting and he's like i can't stand it i gotta go call it and he like <laughs> they had just started now he like flees and everyone follows him and he goes to the phone and he calls chris and she's like oh hey i'm glad you called uh i'm having a party and i want to invite you yeah great i'll be there bye and like he can't get off the phone fast enough he's just like yeah he yeah. couldn't get to the phone fast enough and now he can't get off the call fast enough and there's this great little moment uh, and it's such a good moment as an actor i feel like because he's trying to tell i think it's dalton charlie dalton and he's like wait she invited you to her boyfriend's party don't you see that as a problem he's like that's not the point he's like what's the point the point the point she was thinking about me <laughs> and it's great because he savors it it's this really great revelatory moment and on the page it could be just this rush of words but he sat there and he savored the idea that chris thought about him and he just kind of rolls it out uh, to his friends as he's just savoring it like honey off the tongue like it's just this mm -hmm. beautiful little moment that hey he could have just popped it out like hey don't you get it and in this exciting moment and i'm sure it would have been good but it wouldn't have been great <laughs> right right and i love that i he think just this movie is full moment. of that kind of stuff man yeah it's just full of it uh it's you know so that is. goes yeah that goes to the direction i feel like is so well directed and to be working with so many young young actors i mean that had to be i mean i don't know they're all fantastic actors so maybe it wasn't so hard i don't yeah. know um whereas you know maybe if you have a cast of 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 younger younger actors that are not of that caliber it could be very difficult and exhausting and you've got to do a lot of takes and stuff maybe in this case because they were just all i mean they're all like, <laughs> I mean, you know, all their faces almost. I mean, there's a good, you know, four or five of them that continue to, you know, still work now, you know, you know, 40 years later almost. So, um, so yeah, I, w I wonder, but there had to be a lot of element of direction there of, you know, maybe, maybe we're told him to pause, have yeah. that moment, you know, in, in this, you know, or, or or whatever, but I feel like there were so many great moments like that. Like in, in when Todd, one moment like that in particular that stuck with me was like that I think was probably a mixture of both direction and just um, excellent acting is after Todd finds out that Neil has died and they go out into the snow and he he's he can't breathe he can't breathe he can't really accept it and then he throws up and then he's you know they're holding him they're holding him and and he lets that happen for a moment and then he breaks away and he just, and then the camera just stays on him yeah. as he walks or runs away and then just goes on to the frozen lake or whatever it was. And it just holds on him for, a, you know, uh, an awkward amount of time. It felt like, you know, that's, that's obviously the direction part, but probably the acting part was because Ethan Hawke is an incredible actor uh, as is. 
um, even at that age, was an incredible actor. I mean, it's a testament to to everybody. I think you know, it's another statement of you know, it takes a village to make a film, right? It takes a yeah. you know, I mean, one person can make a movie, but it takes a village to make a film. Like, there's so many different um, things that have to come together in the right way. You can't just be a great director and have shitty actors, or you can't just be a great actor and have a shitty script. You know, it's like you kind of have to have it all, you know? I mean, you can take a really, you know, you can take an okay script and act it into a good script, right? You can do that, but you can't take an okay script and act it into a great script. Usually, unless you're Robin Williams, in which case you can do whatever the hell you want. And there's very few actors. I feel like that I could say that about, I feel like he is uh, or was one of the most well-rounded actors I mean, he could literally do anything he could make you laugh and then l- the next line make you cry in the same phrase he can make you laugh and cry and tell me one other actor that can do that none i mean i i challenge anybody i mean leave it in the comments or something like like tell us something give me one other actor that can do what robin williams did you know, even half as good. No one. There's no one. And I will, uh, you know, I would love to see what you think, but then I'll call your bluff and say that's <laughs> probably not the case. Um, and that, so he could probably do it, but there's very few people that can. And and um, uh, this felt like this movie had all of it. Had great story, great writing. Its setup was fantastic. The direction was really wonderful. The editing was was wonderful too. Yeah. Um, and there were these tiny little moments. One of my favorite moments. Um, like loving moments um, of the film was when uh, Neil and I'm, I hope we're not getting off track. I mean, nope. we're not, we're talking about the movie, yeah. but I, I want to, you know, stay on your um, naming convention notes, but uh, it was when Neil uh, finds out that it's Todd's birthday and Todd, you know, Todd got the same desk set as last year, you know, and, and we haven't seen anything about Todd's parents or family. We don't know a whole lot about it. You know, we find out a little bit in that scene, but, And just the loving way that Neil handled that, you know, I think that, you know, the way I handle would handle it, you know, would be more like, man, that sucks. I'm really sorry. You know, happy birthday. Let's go do something. Let's go. Yeah. I don't know. You know, let's go hang out or something. But he did such a more eloquent, uh, beautiful thing. Hmm. It's very aerodynamic. (laughs) And then let's, let's Todd throw it off the, the, like, perfect. Just wonderful little moment that did not have to happen. Uh-huh. That didn't do anything other. I mean, it did. It did a lot for for us in our uh, identifying and love of Neil, but it didn't push the story, you know, forward. It, it like could have been anything. Um, it's just such a wonderful thing to like give us a little bit of Todd's, you know, upbringing. Show you know Neil as this loving, you know, person. And creative person, loving and cre- creative, like that takes creativity to think of how do I make this person feel better right now? You know, it's not an easy thing to do. Um, uh, so yeah, beautifully written, acted, executed, directed. Yeah. Completely agree. And Todd is an interesting character. Um, for one, I think we can all agree Todd is the worst. Todd is like ugly and Todd is, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's nice. I but, catch it. I'm picking up what you're putting down. <laughs> but, but Todd is an interesting character just because his name, Todd Anderson, like 
that doesn't pop the way the rest of these names pop like uh neil perry uh dalton cameron like they gave anderson like he's got the driest blankest name of the bunch which completely lines up with not just his his character you know trying to come out of his shell and find his identity but also like they i love that they gave him a death set like when he was first moving in I, i saw him put the death set out and i was like what did he just put it did he just put a desk on his desk? Like what, what just happened there? Yeah. <laughs> and then to see that later on as a thing, uh, I was like, wow. So his, his parents are as vanilla as can be as well. And fairly absent, like practical people. I'm sure that's, you know, how they look at themselves. And so I love kind of the building around his character of, we're going to kind of keep him quiet and uh, reserved until he finally finds his voice at the end. And that'll be our, our crowning moment of nonconformity and having someone arrive. And it still shows up a little in his naming convention, even if it's not quite as obvious as some of these other ones. Um, like I already mentioned Neil um, and him refusing to kneel and being forced to kneel. And therefore like he killed himself, right? Because without choice or his reason to live, right. Which was defined very early on by Keating, right? Romance, love, passion, that's the why. That's the reason we live. Even though all these engineers, doctors, lawyers, like we need those things. Those are good and ways to, to sustain our life. But without a reason to live, we, we, we can't. And so for, for Neil himself, having that reason stripped away from him, he was already dead. Like that was, as far as the writing goes, he was just formalizing the reality of his life because fine, he could choose to go through the motions for the next 10 years. But if he doesn't get to do the things that he wants to do, that's just a pointless 10 years of life. Or, uh, and maybe it kind of, you know, emasculates or neuters his very being, his ability to live. Um, and so that was just kind of an extension and very profound and effective within the story. Uh, but if you kind of remove yourself a little bit and see the symbolic symbolic gesture of it uh, from a writing perspective, you're like, okay, I get why he as a character had to die um, because it made no sense for him to keep going if he's going to not have his reason for living. Um, And so I think that's a very well-written character. And I love that it wasn't done in this, you know, over the top way. It wouldn't have fit with this film. And, And in that way, let's keep it off screen um, and instead, we'll mm-hmm. we'll experience it through his parents, um, as you were noting earlier, um, and his mom. God, that's yeah. I need to move on. And so, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Charlie Dalton was interesting, um, not necessarily because of his name. I'm sure there's something there, uh, but I thought it was interesting because he renamed himself. Mm-hmm. He gave himself Nuanda, uh, which I have no idea what that means. I probably spelled it wrong. But Nuanda, and I thought that was a really good use of a, a, a name because whenever he gets called into the office, right after his, he speaks out, he gets pulled into the deans, and uh, he gets you know whipped. Uh, and we, growing up, we had corporal punishment in my school. That was something that parents had to sign off on. And if you didn't want that, like you could not sign off, and they wouldn't whip your kid. Most parents did sign off uh, and they would look at look at look at the kids, looked at us um, because every kid said the same thing. How could you let, you know, our, our teachers uh, uh, punish us like that? 
they're like, well, don't give them a reason. And that was kind of the end of it. <laughs> end of the discussion. Yeah. It was like, oh. um, and Worst. I'm not sure. I'm sure some, some teachers abused it. Uh, but for the most part, like it was usually done through the, the principal and they would notify the parents. It was all, it seemed to mostly be done on the up and up. Um, though I'm sure there was a few teachers who just had a problem kid and they abused their authority. But anyway, in regards to this film, and I don't know that I would sign off on that just for the record, I probably wouldn't be, I'm like, eh, if, if my kid's going to get a lick, it's going to come from me or uh, his, his other parent and whatever that becomes its whole other conversation. But hmm. I love that he named himself Nuwanda in in the in one of their society meetings acts out gets punished and he walks back to his room and, and neil is there saying hey what'd you tell him what did you do charlie what did you tell them and he says damn it neil the name is nuanda mm-hmm. and they smile and he closes the door and it's such a great use of a name to epitomize fidelity to the group without actually having to say i didn't i didn't say a word um, yeah. and it's so good because if you can say it in fewer words, it's often better if you can like just summarize it in a line. And I don't know if there's been a more appropriate use of this phrase, but to quote Shakespeare, uh, brevity is the soul of wit, like condense it down to its most pure form. And if you can do that, you can build yourself into a moment that allows for having a moment that's one of the hardest things to do in a movie is to is to deliver a line and have a moment in that line that just reflects and allows the characters to kind of reflect and to have let the music swell and to allow the audience to kind of bask in the sunlight of that moment because if, you know there's times for a monologue and you know you want to save those save the monologue for a moment because that's going to be its own moment but if your characters are constantly monologuing uh, that could run the the risk of becoming a very dry, bland uh, script. Instead, you usually want characters bouncing off of one another. And in this case, that's exactly what they did. They they had Neil and, and Charlie kind of bouncing off each other. And it just kind of popped in this one simple moment. Yeah. And so I it's love beautiful. that. Yeah. yeah. And they, they set it up through the naming convention. Cameron, I thought, was uh, an interesting, not because of his name, I guess. I, I didn't walk away with anything regarding his name but when we meet him and he's putting his foot in his mouth he meets todd and he's already like bagging on todd literally hasn't even met him yet and he's just casting this judgment against him and of course neil's like hey don't mind cameron like he's just always putting his foot in his mouth um and in the inaugural dead poet society meeting neil tells this great horror story about this old widow who's putting a puzzle together that spells her death. Um, and it's like, wow, it's really creative and inventive and uh, it lands really well. And Cameron chimes in, I got one that's even better than that. And he starts telling this really tired old story about the, uh, the, the murderer who gets loose from the, the psych ward or whatever. And everyone immediately shouts him down like, yeah, bang, bang, bang. We, everyone knows that one. And he's just, He's already a very tired character we don't like. And so, uh, of course, he becomes our, our villain alongside some of the teachers, right? And it just kind of boils down to there's always this kid who just doesn't get it. Like, he just doesn't really get what's going on. And that I want to say it even happens uh, at the beginning, whenever the very first class 
where Keating mm-hmm. takes them down to the hallway and they're all sitting looking at like the whatever the pictures of bygone eras um and keating's like yeah look I'm, i wasn't always the the 400 pound titan that sits before you you know i used to be the intellectual equivalent of this 98 pound scrawny kid um who would go to the beach and have you know men and women kick copies of whatever Whitman in my face. Right. Uh, and he's kind of invoking this idea of this scrawny kid having dirt kicked into his face, but instead of dirt, it's like a really like Shakespeare or whatever it was. And it gets a laugh from some of the students. Like we look at, I want to say Neil and Dalton and they're kind of laughing and Cameron's looking over them confused. Like, I don't, what are you, why are you laughing? Like it's brief and it's a glance, but I'm just like, yeah, this is a kid who's just, He's not with it. He's going to, mm-hmm. he's a yes, sir, no, sir. And he's going to get in line and do as he's told. And you know what? That's fine. I guess the world needs those. But at the same time, that's the kid who gets everyone in trouble. <laughs> like, yeah. Who brings it all down, blames it on someone who doesn't deserve the blame just to save his own skin. Yeah. And so I don't know what's in the name for Cameron, but screw Cameron. <laughs> <laughs> um keating as a teacher uh this kind of goes a little bit further into the the writing aspect in the story it's interesting that he invokes oh captain my captain and he's like it's by walt whitman and it's about abraham lincoln Uh, and that's such an interesting thing to invoke because lincoln is known as an emancipator right and so he's invoking and he says you know you can call me mr keating or if you're more daring you can call me oh captain my captain um, so he's kind of invoking himself as a, a Lincoln-esque character to to these kids because he's here to free these kids out of their their you know shackles of uh, of conformity. And so his whole mission, uh, as we come to understand it, is to free them through a very simple concept, which is carpe diem. Right? He's trying to teach these kids how to seize the day and how to suck the marrow out of life and how to challenge you know the people around them the conventions around them and how to how to be your own person and what i love about this is as a movie you could write it in a way that the kids go and do it and they're and they kill it like they just get out there and they seize the day yet i love that they have these carpe diem fails like they just screw it up yeah <laughs> Because that's what kids do. You can give them the right lesson and they're going to just distort it and, you know, use it in the wrong way. And that's part of the game. And you have to let people fail and, and experiment and play in the sandbox and get it wrong and get sick and, you know, break a leg or whatever. Like if you're going to climb trees, you're going to break your arm. Like, does that mean you shouldn't climb trees or does that mean you should learn to do it better? I don't know, but for me, I want my kids climbing trees and and risking it um, because that's going to teach them the extent of what they're willing to risk. And playing these games with risk are part of how we get very good at living life. And so I love that he let them go out and fail. Like Knox goes to that party and he finds himself a little drunky face and sitting next to the girl of his dreams. And he leans over and he kisses her on the, on the forehead this is a fail. That's creepy. Don't do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. And of course, you know, she's sleeping, so she doesn't know what's going on. Um, but immediately he gets called out and he gets his ass kicked. You know what? Well-deserved. <laughs> and he doesn't like 
he doesn't hold it against them in that way. Like he, he, he knows he screwed up and he admits it later on. And he tells Chris that he screws up. And I love that. I love that Dalton slips this article into the newspaper, which is a good idea in terms of he's challenging the, the co-ed aspect. And then he acts out an assembly and it's and and to your point, like Keating walks in and he corrects him. Um, and I love the way he does it. He's like, Hey man, sucking the marrow out of life does not mean choking on the bone <laughs> like you gotta survive there's a time for caution uh and there's a there's a time you know for daring and if you want to be wise you'll know the difference and but i love it i love seeing a, a an inspiring idea misapplied and used as a lesson um because otherwise you might walk out of the theater and think yeah we're just gonna go for it and we're gonna run through traffic and it's like hey that's not what we're discussing here apply it properly as uh, you know as it applies to your life and i feel like that's kind of the thing that you and i are always talking about because we're always talking about chasing you know what you love and your passion but we try as much as we can to to hedge it a little bit with you know as you can you know do it responsibly um and so i feel like this whole movie is just that <laughs> yeah. yeah and uh i have two very small final things i love the final moments of them standing on their desk i know it's very on the nose and uh you could look at it and just kind of roll your eyes i love it i think it's a really strong moment uh especially for uh you know todd finding his voice and he's the first one up uh and of course screams about his uh his arc and his journey um but also there's a very simple thing that's kind of happening there i will say that i am inserting this i'm not saying that this is what they were going for but from a cinematography standpoint it kind of looks like they're hanging from the ceiling like sorry no it's it's fine if it's god calling collect then i would say that's daring <laughs> I, I have my sound off i don't know how that happened yeah but it looks to me like they're hanging from the ceiling a little bit based on the angle like they're you know they're they're towering over us which is good that still calls back to the the elements that you know the movie is directly playing on keating saying stand and uh look from a different perspective and he's elevating against the, you know them against himself and um they're standing up to nonconformity, all these things but they also just look like they're kind of hanging from the ceiling they're not in this power pose like their their heads are kind of tilted almost like the the rope is around them and there's one character maybe it's coincidence based on we can't just change all the lights in the room um which they could but there's a there's kind of a rope behind one of the characters on the right if you will like it's the 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 chandelier or whatever you call that dangling lamp that has a rope you know or uh, the the cord you know just coming down from the ceiling and it's behind one of the characters and it looks like it could be a rope anyway so it just kind of had this feeling that they're hanging almost dead from the ceiling and to me the the symbology of that if that were intentional would be that they are now dead poets they are kind of becoming the thing that they have been trying to become uh, which is these uh, romantic group of people uh, who are now pursuing something much greater um, because eventually as he says in that very first meeting you're all dead we're all warm food men you know and eventually that's what each one of us becomes and you can either face it and, and chase life or you can not and become like Walt Whitman said, maybe someone who died yet never having lived. 
and that would be you know the the greatest catastrophe of all yeah there is one little odd bit that i i discovered in the while creating the show notes which was lara flynn boyle was in this film yet not in this film like she was cast but she was deleted from the film and i found that really interesting she's a she's just as you know to me anyway famous as some of these other characters like josh charles ethan hawk robert sean leonard fine maybe not robin williams but she's she's big she's a very big name uh, and i just found it interesting that she was deleted probably for runtime i'm sure that probably cut off five or ten minutes worth i don't know which character she was i i would guess she would be one of the characters in the play if not one of the the friends of chris Knoll. but i don't know hmm. i find it interesting i guess just from the standpoint as a director sometimes you have to cut great performances good actors good story if for no other reason to meet a runtime goal because maybe the studio comes back and says we're pushing two and a half hours here you gotta you gotta give us something and that's when you start cutting out characters entirely because to have a good character you have to establish them then you have to give them some kind of arc even if it's very small and then you know that starts to add runtime so as a director if you're like struggling to add runtime or to remove runtime that's usually going to come at the cost of an entire character oh i need to create a new character or oh i need to remove a character um and then you start looking for ones that don't affect the rest of the dominoes as they fall uh, the mm. same thing happened in the the two towers lord of the rings the two towers like in the theatric release there is no christopher lee uh peter jackson had to remove him because the runtime was getting away from him oh and, man and he brought him back of course for the extended edition but these are things and if anyone thinks going into a film, Christopher Lee isn't going to make the cut. Uh, yeah. no, no, one, no one's thinking that. Um, yeah. But you do what you have to do as a director. And sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's painful. But the, the reality is you have to do what's best for your movie. And that's not always a fun, happy thing. Yeah, that's just part of the game of acting. I've, I've been victim to that. I don't want to say, you know, that I'm like some someone above it or that Peter Weir's above it or that Peter Jackson's above it. You Peter's got to get your game together, man. <laughs> <laughs> but I've been cut out. I was casting a Super Bowl commercial for Pepsi and they cut me out of the whole freaking thing. Like that's, that's the breaks. And for the record, I'm still not drinking Pepsi, but I understand. <laughs> I get it. I hold a grudge, but at the same boycott, time, boycott, yeah, Pepsi. boycotting Pepsi. <laughs> but I'm not recommending anyone else not drink Pepsi. Like, hey, they did what they had to do. That was best for their commercial. Um, yeah. And I don't, you know, I don't actually begrudge them that, even if it hurt the hell out of my feelings. That's just the realities of filmmaking, you know. But don't drink Pepsi unless you want to get gallstones. Correct. Right. Okay. Got it. <laughs> not doctors, it. not actual medical advice. <laughs> right. <laughs> well said. Uh, anyway, that's, um, that's, that's that man. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Uh, maybe we could just, maybe one last thing we could talk about the um, one thing that kind of felt like it was at the forefront of this uh, from the beginning all the way to the end was this, I, this pressure on, on kids. And we talked about it earlier this pressure on kids to obey, right? This pressure on kids to, to do what the grownups tell you to do, right? Um, and how detrimental that can be. I think that that is also a massive message in this, in this film, right? So 
let's look at what that did. I mean, it did two, two huge things in this film. One, I mean, it did several huge things, but two of the biggest things were caused by the, by the kids being forced to do the right thing or obey the higher ups, the heads, the leaders, the, the, the grownups per se, the mm -hmm. parents, even we can lump the parents into here. It's not just the teachers. Let's not just blame them because they're doing what they think the parents want them to do also. Right. And the principal even said, or was it the principal? No, it was, it was the guy who became Keating's friend, right? The other, the other, um, teacher who they were they debated a little bit yeah and then kind of laughed about it at the table i didn't see you as a cynic i'm not a cynic i'm a realist and then you know all that, yeah. that whole banter they became friends it was never spoken but you could tell yeah. that they became friends but there is this so the first thing the first thing is um keating's departure and todd says it right at the end as keating's leaving they made us sign it they made you know they made us sign it okay well when you're you know 17, 16, 17, 18, most kids, at least kids that go to a boarding school, their parents were like, they do what their parents tell them to do. Like they obey, right? Especially back in the sixties and stuff. Like it was just a different time. It was a, you obey or you get beaten, you obey or shit goes South quick. You go to military academy, a military academy, learn that from an early age, right? So this, this is a really important thing because that still happens to this day. It doesn't necessarily have to be just teachers. It can be parents or parents. It can be anybody mm -hmm. in, in a position of power thinking that everyone needs to see the world from their point of view and they need to educate everyone, right? On not just educate them on the world, but educate them on their world, their point of view. And that's when it becomes detrimental. That's where wow. it becomes backward thinking. So that's why Keating was 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 removed. It wasn't because the kids really wanted him out. The kids knew the truth, right? But forced with the pressure, you're 16, 17 years old, forced with the pressure of of your parents and the pressure of uh, you know your teachers and the principal and and ex expulsion or or you know military school. You kind of are not thinking I'm going to save this old guy. You're thinking I got to save myself, uh -huh. right? Uh, there's this self-preservation thing that that kind of starts to you know as you age it, it starts to slowly fade a little bit you always have the self-preservation thing always mm -hmm. to the point where you die but but it's you know you become you start thinking about other people and and your interactions with them the older you get and you don't think about that when you're 16 the world is very small uh, so there's that but also you know it's neil's death is because of this and this really hit me hard, but the moment in their study, when, when his dad brings him in the study and his mom is sitting in the corner silently and they're talking and they're yelling at each other. And, and Neil says, you, you're not listening to me. There's a moment where his dad says, what? Tell me his dad, as big of an asshole as he is, is reaching out to him, begging him to tell him, but it's too late. He has already beaten it out of his son. And he does it in such a way that it doesn't really, it's not, it's not even really a question. It's like, say what you're going to say so that I can destroy it. Right. It never, it doesn't really feel like an invitation and you can feel his conflict of, do I really become vulnerable to this man? 
uh, now because he's yelling at me to say what I wanted, what I feel, but, uh, mm-hmm. he's with his, his body language, with his, his tenor, uh, like he's not yeah. really inviting me to, to, right. to learn about me. Yeah. So. Right. And it's so heartbreaking because it's, it's, that's the moment Neil's been waiting for. Mm-hmm. That's the moment that Keating has told him to look for or to go after and to take advantage of, right. To talk to him. And even earlier on when Neil lies to Keating and says he talked to his dad, Keating knew. Keating knew he didn't talk to his dad. It was oh. very obvious. He's, oh. You see it on his face. But that's the moment. But it was too late because his dad had already beaten it out of him so much that he knew that no matter what I tell this man, he's not going to get it. He even saw me perform. And that's so brilliant of, uh, in the script to allow his father not just to give him the ability to perform and to, to consummate his love for acting, but to see his to allow his father to see him not only love it, but to be excellent at it. And then to still, to still make the decision to destroy his life. I mean, it's just heartbreaking all around. It's heartbreaking for Neil. It turns out to be heartbreaking for the parents. Um, And just goes to show you that like, you can never know what's best for someone else's life. And some, uh, some decision that might not make any sense to you has nothing to do with you right? Just because it's your son and he's not playing music like you want him to play music or he's not uh, heterosexual like you want him to be heterosexual or whatever has nothing to do with you and everything to do with what fire gives them fire. And it's, it's just, it's not just parents or teachers, it's politicians, it's employers, it's anyone who has some sort of power over anyone else. Like, Everyone are people, everyone has different circumstances. You have to like really take that seriously and pay attention to all of that. It's like so vital because you never know where someone is in their life. And obviously his dad was so absent in Neil's life that he he didn't see the writing on the wall. He, di- he couldn't see how destroyed his son was. He chose to even in that moment where Neil sits back down and is reserved to, okay, I've been beaten. He says, let's go to bed. And he walks out of the room. He can't even look at him. He can't watch him even after he's destroyed him, you know? And what's worse is his mother is so silent and, you know, (laughs) and still has a word at the end. It's like she's silent through all of that. But then at the end, she kneels down next to him and and I don't even know what she says because it's, it's so like, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Like you, you could have said something to defend me or, or to just, you could have said something earlier when it mattered and now it doesn't. And so, yeah, anyway, I just think that it's the same as what we've talked about before that power, power can corrupt and make you in a way that makes you think that you're right rather than in a way that gives you the opportunity to empower others, which is what Keating was doing. You know, by kneeling down, like you mentioned earlier, with the with the kids, by walking with them out in the courtyard, by you know, giving giving them love for something rather than um, or introducing love of something to them rather than trying to take anything away, like take any power away. He was trying to give them power, and it's yeah. so beautiful. And it's no one better than Robin Williams to give that. No, completely agree. But I love that point. I mean, it is. And, and I can only imagine what it's like for parents because 
you do want something good for your kid and it's and from their perspective it's not out of malice it's out of we and it's this uh, ego that we know more and it's true they've experienced more life but even though whatever he's 17 18 they they don't know more than he does about him and for him it's still a discovery so if he's still discovering who he is how could they possibly know you know what the next 20 30 40 60 years of his life should be like you know that's that's just not possible yeah their their intentions may have been you know honest but obviously the execution was was lacking and in that way this film was not super easy for me to identify with i mean there's these universal truths that i connect with and i mean i'm a very empathetic person so i can watch what neil was struggling with and and certainly say oh wow like his dad ah, i forgot to add, add, add him to the notes but he's such a good actor that in you know oh, man. very brief scenes he's able to really get across the idea that you don't talk back to me you do exactly as i say and then whenever you're done with my roadmap for you then you can have your life and do what you like. <laughs> like, yeah. And I buy into it. And I'm like, and that's important to buy into Neil's reality because for him, he has to really believe that he has no choice, that he has no options in life for him to really mm-hmm. carry out that, that act. And this whole movie is one long path for him to get there. And, and in some way, you know, uh, Keating was a blessing and a curse because maybe to some degree, I kind of agree that, Without Keating, maybe that maybe he doesn't kill himself. Um, but I don't think that's the better way to live. And I think that's the point is we have to, you know, you know, extricate ourselves from the from the movie a little bit to, to get into the symbology, um, because do you would you rather live and only at the end realized of your life, you know, that to realize you never lived or would it be better to understand going in, man, life is not x y and z life is whatever i want to make of it and uh these elements of life are what's really important um or at least to have those thoughts presented to you so that you can say yeah i see what you mean bro but that's not me like cameron i feel like had this tray of desserts set in front of him and he's like you know i'm really more of a meat and potato kind of guy uh and that's great for cameron you know but i think it's better to have knowledge than to not have knowledge um and i don't know that you could present me with anything that I would say, uh, wow, that truth really sucks. Um, and I wish I hadn't known it as opposed to giving me that truth. I'm sure there's some things, but if you could could tell me God exists or doesn't exist, I would rather know that, um, for Mm -hmm. better or worse. If you were to be like, Scientology is correct. I'd be like, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Well, all right. (laughs) Time for my audit. <laughs> not what I wanted to hear, oh, but you know what? I'm glad twice I know. In two days, because... you got me, man. Yesterday at the workout, you got me too. Well, I don't even remember what it was. It was some. It was like, oh my god! Oh, the, the laser thing. Response. It was the laser thing. The what? The laser thing. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so just to set the the table, like we were working out yesterday, and I was like, Todd, man, I read this crazy freaking thing. I think it was these. Uh, Chinese scientists who came up with the most powerful laser in the world. And it's been like over 10 years in the making where they're developing these techniques to make this incredibly powerful laser. And the way they describe the laser is that if you were to take all the sunlight that hits the earth on a given day, 
and like narrow it down, focus it into one micron. That's how powerful this laser is. It's absolutely astonishingly like powerful, um, mind bending. And Tato's like, whoa, that's freaking crazy. Like, what are they, what are they going to use it for? And I was like, uh, I don't know, like making CDs and stuff. <laughs> it was perfect. Because you weren't expecting me to ask that question, so you had no answer. It's like, oh, that's going to, it's going to either stop the conversation or I'm just going to give the first thing that comes to my head. And that was it. And it was perfect. It was absolutely flawless. I lost my shit. Oh, we were dead. It was so good. Um, but oh. yeah, like I have no idea anymore. Uh, we were just, uh, I know. Yeah. Um, and so in summary, like, <laughs> <laughs> in summary, I barely got through this movie in one piece. I was a mess the entire time. Um, I'm, uh. I'm, and yet I'm still glad that I watched it. Yeah. And I think that, yes, I, I would, I would choose to know as well. Uh, and, and I just, um, I thank Robin Williams for all the gifts that he has given us from Mork and Mindy all the way to Dead Post Society, Aladdin and, uh, Goodwill Hunting and everything else. And I can't, um, yeah, can't thank him enough. And yeah, this movie was amazing. Agreed. Like whenever he passed, I'll say like, I've certainly had a lot of, uh, celebrities die that I care deeply about, like. Tupac dying was a really big deal to me. Uh, Biggie, Aaliyah uh, were all very, very big deals to me. I, but I'm not the kind of person who like cries over those kinds of things because I don't, I don't know these people. I'm going to miss their art. I'm going to miss the light that they brought into the world. Um, but I can distance myself and, and say like, man, I feel my heart goes out to their family and um, you know, the, the art world is suffering, but more importantly, a family is suffering. When he died, that was the first and only time I've like just completely broken down. I had spent uh, just a couple days before that had sat with my girlfriend at the time. We watched uh, What Dreams May Come. Um, And then like two or three days later, like he passed and like I had a massive breakdown. I was like, what? And yeah, that's that. So yeah, completely agree. He brought a lot to the world. So that said, what are you going to recommend this week? Um, uh, kind of a strange thing. So last night, my son and I and my daughter, actually, we watched this new Netflix film, animated film called The Mitchells versus Robots or something like the robots or something like that. Yeah, I, I even forget what it's called because <laughs> there's just so. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's what I'm going to recommend. I was in tears at the end of it too. I don't know why I'm so emotional these days. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But it's it's actually, the animation is incredible in it. There's there's a mixture of obviously computer-generated uh, animation, but looks like hand-drawn animation almost throughout the whole thing. And it's super thoughtful and well done and beautiful at the same time and loving. And it's a great family movie. And it's number one on Netflix right now. So, uh, and as of today, you know, this is May 8th uh, that we're recording this, but 
yeah, I would absolutely go check it out and recommend it, especially if you have kids, whether you have them or not, you know, um, but it's a lot of fun and pokes fun at a lot of things, but um, is is really, really enjoyable. And I think my son flipped out about it and he's, I think, watching it right now with my wife inside. So, <laughs> so yeah, definitely recommend that. Nice. I'm going to recommend a completely different tone, but I'm a, like, I grew up on Ethan Hawke almost in the same way I grew up on uh, Robin Williams. Like, I didn't know Ethan Hawke as a kid, but I watched a lot of his movies um, and didn't realize who who he was and that he was the same human being and, and explorers and whatever before sunrise. And But he, he was a really important. Robin Williams, I knew I was going to watch every Robin Williams everything. Like you said, Mork and Mindy, uh, Good Morning Vietnam, like every single thing he did i watched uh and so big deal but i'm a big fan of ethan hawk but even even just as much i really love robert sean leonard um and he's he's done a lot of great things but i don't think he's had the the name recognition like ethan like robin and even though i think he's just as good of an actor like if you've ever seen swing kids he's fantastic uh, if you've ever watched House, House and D with, you know, Hugh Laurie, yeah. uh, he plays his Good best point. friend. He's fantastic in that. Um, and he has a great character arc through that show. But there's another film that he did with Ethan Hawke by and Ethan Hawke was a was in a film called Before Sunrise that he made with Richard Linkletter. That was one of the most uh, transformative films for me. Um, that, that, and eventually we'll cover that, uh, that'll be a while though. Um, but that was a very formative film for me to see what films could be as a kid. I, I didn't know what they could be until I watched that movie, but he Linkletter made a film with Ethan Hawke and Robert Sean Leonard and Uma Thurman. And it's a three person movie and it all takes place inside of a hotel room and it's called tape and it's so good. Uh, and it goes on a really wild journey. Um, and it's one of those things that as a, as a indie filmmaker, if you want inspiration for, man, how can I tell a low budget story, man, go watch tape. Like it'll, it'll take you on a ride. The performances are all absolutely fantastic and worth watching. So yeah, tape, go check it out. Awesome. Stay tuned for next week. We continue our little Robin Williams, uh, mini marathon with Aladdin. Yeah. So looking that's, forward to that one. That's the uh like 1992 cartoon, not the obviously yeah not, yeah, not the one with Will Smith. It's the one with the actual genie. Uh yeah. <laughs> Aladdin, all respect to Will. Yeah, so stay tuned for that. And don't forget to subscribe, drop us a review on iTunes, uh, preferably of the five-ish star variety. <laughs> <laughs> yes please. Uh, hats it off to everyone who's who's left us reviews izzy and and charlie and alex and show um the whole gang joe like i we really appreciate all those reviews so uh keep it up thank you so much if you want to uh recommend a, a show for us to do a film for us to cover uh you can do that um or if you want to leave a note on this episode and tell todd how he got it wrong that's there's there's another robin williams out there uh you can do that at the pestlepodcast.com slash dead poets society and our quote of the day uh, is from john keats season of mists and mellow fruitfulness close blossom friend 
of the maturing sun, conspiring with him how to load and bless with fruit the vines that round the thatch eaves run. Ah, it's so beautiful. That yeah. just rolls off your tongue. It's very hard to read. Yes. <laughs> it's very hard to read without stumbling, at least for me. But uh, such a beautiful description of something so simple, so simple. which is what um, Keating was talking about. It's yeah. can write, write anything about a, a flower it's or a vine. Yeah, this is part of his most famous poem called To Autumn. Uh, and I debated like reading a, a much bigger chunk of it. Uh, but yeah. I, that was, I was like, there's the romantics. John Keats is clearly inspiration for Keating. Um, and in real life, John Keats died at the age of 25. So everything oh, that man. we that he accomplished came very early in life. Uh, and it's what happened to pretty him? amazing. I mean, there, uh, I don't remember. I, I, I looked it okay. up, but I yeah, I'm not sure. That's right. Um, That's right. Yeah. And so, yeah, just beautiful. It, I'm glad you read the poem earlier from Whitman and now we had Keats. I just wanted to make sure there's a little poetry in the Dead Poet Society. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, it's a great bookend there. Yeah. Well, this is uh, this is uh, exhausting. I'm going to go take a nap, <laughs> uh, but so worth it, man. Yeah. Um, just like just like poetry and literature and art is it's, yeah. it's difficult, but it's worth it for sure. So, like Wes said, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Join us next week. We'll be covering Aladdin um, with Robin Williams. And and please subscribe, review us, uh, share us with your friends. All of it matters and it all helps. Thank you so much. And until next week, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch the movies.